Hello, I'm Sharon Brooks, director of Undercover Live. Today we'll be following police detective Charlie Foster. Everyone's got something to celebrate, so we're throwing the ultimate party that celebrates everything. But what will you celebrate? Taking a ride on Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith is like taking a ride through a rock video. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't leave these people here like this. Come along with us to see the magical worlds of W Radio. Your information station. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 369 for the week of July 13th, 2014. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, my videos, blog, live broadcasts, special events, my books, audio tours, and more. You can find everything, including my new book, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World by visiting www.radio.com. So this week, I get to sit down one-on-one with Disney producer, director, author, and maker of magic, Don Hahn. His credits read like a best of of Disney filmmaking, including Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Emperor's New Groove, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I had a chance to interview Don a few years ago and recently got to sit down with him face-to-face to talk with him about his film career and his work on Disney nature films and Maleficent most recently. He also shared his thoughts on the success of other films like Frozen and Tangled, the importance of music, the transition so many of these films have made to Broadway, and how other animated films have been transitioned to live action. We also discuss what inspires him and us as viewers, storytelling, and so much more. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned, I'll have some updates Announcement including information about upcoming meets of the month in Walt Disney World and other meets we're going to have around the country. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. If you know and love Disney films, chances are you know and love the name Don Hahn. He was the producer of some of the most successful animated films in history, such as Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Emperor's New Groove, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. His other credits include the Disney nature documentaries Earth, Oceans, and African Cats, and his latest work, Chimpanzee. He also directed Waking Sleeping Beauty, the story of the renaissance of Disney animation in the 80s and 90s, and recently was the executive producer for the live-action reimagining of Maleficent. I had the pleasure of interviewing Don by phone back on show number 160 in 2010, along with director Peter Schneider, and discussed his film career and Waking Sleeping Beauty in depth. At the recent Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet in Seattle, Washington, I had the pleasure of meeting Don face-to-face and spending some time chatting with him casually over dinner. I also sat in on his presentation to those in attendance, which I still feel was one of the most powerful, fascinating, and brilliantly presented I have ever seen. 
He's an amazing storyteller who really knows how to reach people through words, images, and the planting of seeds to your imagination. He was also kind enough to spend some time with me for a brief interview, which I am so excited to share with you today. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I give you the amazing Don Hahn. So I'm sure you either don't remember, we actually have never met before, but you were on the show back in 2010. Uh, you and Peter had come on to talk about Waking Sleeping Beauty, um, still one of the most downloaded and most popular interviews I've ever done. Oh, thank you. That's good. Always, always happy to talk to you, even if I'm a little sketchy on whether I remember or not. It's always good to talk to you. It really is. Just follow the cue cards. It just says Lou Mangello. That's all thank I need you. to Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, that's all I need. That's good. <laughs> We're both a little sleepy today, but we're fine. We're good. That's good. Listen, it's going to be better because we have little sleep and a little bit of jet lag. It's true. Yeah. yeah. As you know, you've produced so many incredible, like, legendary animated features, probably on not a lot of sleep and a little bit of jet lag as well. It's um, my secret, actually. And, and so and so, let's, I want to ask you about the secret. Um, and I want to ask before we talk about some of the things you've done, because I think what I, as a, as a Disney enthusiast, first mm-hmm. see happening um, – is, you know, dare I say, are we on the cusp of another animation renaissance? Um, because when you look at Frozen mm-hmm. and the popularity mm-hmm. and the explosion and just the love that months later people still have for this, how do you I- explain it? Do you think this is maybe sort of ushering that this, this next generation of that kind of renaissance? Yeah, no, I think it's actually ushered in and standing at the altar. I think between uh, Wreck-It Ralph and Tangled and Frozen and the next movie coming up, it's... it's uh, it's here and doing great. There's an amazing group of people in animation right now, and they, the directors, the, the whole crew is uh, really innovative, interesting, fearless in their storytelling, and, uh, and making some really great movies, as you can see. And the, the phenomenon of Frozen is unbelievable, you know, just in terms of not just the box office, which is always one indicator, but just in terms of, like, the effect on culture mm. and, and how many versions of Let It Go Can You Hear and all that stuff. So it, it is a phenomenal time, a great time now for Disney Animation. And what do you maybe attribute it to? Because I think when you talk about a movie like Frozen, and again, you can't find merchandise on the shelves. They're bringing it now into the studios. Anna and Elsa still to this day have five-hour waits at the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. every single day. Mm-hmm. What do you think of it? Because for me, the the one thing that I think connects Frozen to movies like Beauty and the Beast and Lion King is the music. And whether it's mm-hmm. Let It Go or some of the other songs, it's one of the things that we remember that everybody knows the words to. Yeah, it's really true. You know, it, it, if you say, um, what do you remember about Disney movies going back to Snow White? It's probably a musical moment. You probably remember Baby Mine from Dumbo or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so when people see a Disney fairy tale like uh, Frozen and get a chance to hear a great musical score, it is a it is comfortable in terms of an expectation, but then it was executed in kind of a fresh way. So, and that's kind of what creativity is. You're, you're taking ideas that seem familiar, comfortable ideas, but you're putting them together in an unexpected way with unexpected themes, which mm-hmm. that movie has very good, positive, interesting themes about it. And who, who knows how to explain the phenomenon? It, it is part uh, skill and planning uh, and a great deal of luck and a great deal of uh, the audience being ready for a movie like that, ready for fantasy, mm-hmm. um, ready for wish fulfillment, ready for mm-hmm. good guys to win, uh, in this case, good girls to win. And uh, I think it really hit a nerve, obviously, around the world in places like Japan where it's still playing in you know, number one slot for 10 or 15 weeks. So it is a phenomenon. 
and I know, and I and I've admitted this. You know, before the film came out, I wasn't as excited to see it as as I thought it was. I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to be another princess movie, and I remember sitting there in the theater, looking around like I was in shock, and my kids literally sat there agape with their eyes wide open just loving this film and I'm like this is it like this mm-hmm. is sort of that quintessential Disney film where I as a parent my kids love it together what did you like about it? I thought it was visually breathtaking mm-hmm. um, just the, the you know the, the animation was spectacular but there were characters you can connect with it mm-hmm. was fun it was funny like you said it was unexpected in mm-hmm. a lot of different mm-hmm. ways um, I think I, I do like the redeeming qualities of the story and mm-hmm. what it, it tries to portray yeah yeah um but I think it, it was sort of the surprise of not sort of expecting it to be what yeah. it was. Yeah, it's it, those are special movies because all movies are a struggle to make. And I know this one was too. I didn't work on it, but I know the filmmakers that worked on the show uh, you know, really struggled to tell the story. And a lot of times it's like finding your way through a dark tunnel with a, without a flashlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they pulled it off in a beautiful way. And I think sometimes that fear you have when you're making the film – that fear in your gut uh, of, like, can I do this? Will anybody want to see it? Which you have on every film. Um, manifests itself as uh, kind of great uh, emotional ideas up on the screen because you have no time to think about it. You just have to say, okay, what's my best emotional idea I can put out there? Uh, and it was a great crew, hmm. really great crew. So I walked out of the theater, literally, and I took my phone out of my pocket and I went to the iTunes store and downloaded the soundtrack. And we played the soundtrack as we got in the yeah, car and home. you and millions of others. Yeah. And that's it's such a tribute to... Um, Animation is such a team sport. You know, you can't point to one person and say, oh, it's, it's her film or his film or whatever. You have some great leadership, certainly, on that film. But you have a, a team of, let's say, you know, software engineers that are writing code for how snow behaves. Huh? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, uh, actresses doing voices and songwriters and things. And it's that perfect storm of elements that comes together and creates a good film. And that's something you hope for and wish for and you start out to try to do every time. And when it happens, it's a miracle. And something else that, that's happening, too, and I think, again, it goes back to all these great musicals, is so many of the, of the incredible films you worked on have now made their way to reach another audience in another venue, you know, and going to Broadway. And mm-hmm. the incredible success of these f- films going to Broadway, not in sort of just direct word-for-word adaptations, but really um, taking it to a whole other level. And there is something about seeing people in person sitting in a theater. It is. Uh, uh, Julie Tamor, who directed Lion King, she always says it's, there's something about being in the presence of the gladiators. You know, you can, you can see the sweat. You can hear the air move when they sing. And that's uh, really true. We have an, a relationship. Uh, it's, it's why a person-to-person meeting is better than a Skype, which is better than a phone call, which is better than a text message. So the closer you can get to that tangible, tactile thing, the better. It's a guy, great guy named Tom Schumacher, who runs the theatrical division. And Tom comes from animation. He um, many years ago he worked on the Olympic Arts Festival in Los Angeles. He was the first person to bring Julie Taymor to Los Angeles. He worked in animation for a long time, and now he heads the theatrical division. And he's he brings in the greatest people. Like the production of Aladdin that's on now is brilliant. Newsies, which was a kind of a cult favorite among certain people, but not necessarily a huge hit. It's the best night in the theater I've had in ages. And so he has a way of, of, of putting together an army of interesting people and not being too precious about the original movie uh, and breaking some boundaries, making it unexpected. So when you go to the theater, yes, you're going to get Aladdin or Lion King or Mary Poppins, but you're also going to get a lot of new, fresh uh, entertainment. We're in the entertainment business, so go figure. And it's funny you mentioned Newsies because I think it, it very much did have that sort of cult following it wasn't necessarily the, mm-hmm. the, you know the most popular huge success but what it did it, I think it sort of 
the Broadway brought the um, attention back to the film, and I was finding that people were asking me, hey, where can I find Newsies in the parks? Are they going to bring Newsies to the Disney really? parks? They wanted to sort of, they wanted more of it after they saw it on Broadway. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that's the thing about these movies and, and anything Disney really is. Um, after you've seen the movie or the Broadway show, you want to have the experience continue. So that's why consumer products works or that's why the parks work. You want to take those characters home with you. And I say that in a kind of non, non-commercial hat on because it's, yes, there's a commercial part of it. And yes, it makes a lot of money for the company and all that stuff. But there is a part of it that's really genuine when you see a little kid in bed at night snuggling up to their, you know, uh, Kermit the Frog doll or something. You, you feel like there's a connection that person wants to be able to take that thing home that they saw in the theater. And that's, that's really wonderful. And it goes back to Frozen again. You can't find Frozen merchandise. You know, you can't find Olaf's. Yeah. You know, if you tried to find a stuffed Olaf somewhere, it's um, it's like I Black Friday. A, yeah, that's probably a sentence you never thought you'd use. <laughs> so um, when I had you on the show last time, and I know you remember that day very well. I do. Um, I do, yeah. We talked a lot about Waking Sleeping Beauty mm-hmm. and sort of going back to, to that early point that I was making. You described as sort of that, that perfect storm mm-hmm. in animation that really hadn't happened since the days of Walt. And I think, you know, speaking about Walt Disney specifically, I think a lot of people know of Waking Sleeping Beauty, but don't know about the film that you produced for, that shows every holiday season at the Walt Disney Family Museum Mm -hmm. that really is about Walt, not the filmmaker, but Walt the dad, Walt the husband, Walt Mm -hmm. the guy who wanted to sit around the Christmas tree with his family. Yeah, Diane Disney Miller and, uh, and Ron Miller came to me probably five years ago, four years ago now. And um, wanted to do something for the museum at the holidays that was a special attraction and that was a, a, a just an annual event. And um, and it seems so natural that I, I associated growing up in Southern California with Disneyland. I associated Disney at the holidays with this amazing magical time and parades and reindeer and tin soldiers and balloon releases and and you know candlelight processions and all that stuff. And it seems such a, a logical thing to do that. And I asked Diane if she would be willing to share some of her home movies because that would personalize it. Because I think so often we think of Walt Disney as a this iconic, untouchable, intangible genius. And in a way he was. But uh, the more interesting part, I think, is the uh, everyday guy who puts his pants on one leg at a time and struggles and has problems with... Uh, getting financing for his crazy ideas and bringing him to life, seeing that guy succeed is really inspiring. So uh, that's what I tried to do in that film is create something where you see here he is. He's a dad. He's riding his kids around in the backyard. He's he's bringing carpenters up from the studio on Christmas Eve, which is kind of a funny story in itself to build a dollhouse in the backyard. You know, <laughs> those poor guys didn't get to spend Christmas with their families, but um, but he has this kind of sense about him, this playful sense. Uh, that goes back to his childhood, and uh, that's what I tried to get across in the movie. Without a narrator, I mean, I, I'm, when I make documentaries especially, I I don't always like to use a narrator. I wanted Diane to tell the story. I wanted Ron Miller to tell the story. And I wanted Walt to tell the story because my, my argument to them was, here you have the greatest storyteller of the 20th century. Let him tell his story in his own words. So we found great sound bites, great interviews. Uh, you know, moments from the Olympics, moments from, uh, you know, holiday specials on television and cut them together into this really sweet film. And what it does is what the museum does, and we had a chance to visit it uh, last year, is it humanizes the man and, and humanizes to what many people sort of was, you know, the brand. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Walt Disney the, the, the person. It was sort of Walt Disney the brand. It was the, the figure that they saw mm-hmm. on TV. Um, 
yeah, now there's generations of people who haven't seen Walt Disney on TV and, and who might uh, look at the bronze statue in the center of the hub at the parks and go, who is that mommy? Uh, so it's nice that the museum's there, among many other things uh, around the world, to keep that legacy going. Um, and it's not for the aggrandizement of Walt Disney. I, I'm sure he probably wouldn't be that comfortable with it. But there's a, an ethic and an aesthetic that goes along with Disney that's about storytelling and sincerity and uh, a, a genuine uh, approach to his work that is worth preserving. And I think that's why I do it. That's why I come to uh, places like this to talk about it because that aesthetic and that um, approach to your work is is brilliant. And, and in a way, that's what Walt Disney uh, created that was his biggest lasting legacy. And using the term legacy makes me think about some other projects that you work on uh, for Disney in terms of, of filmmaking is the Disney Nature Series because Walt Disney you know, is certainly very well known for not just being a conservationist, but he loved animals and he loved sort of telling stories Individuals let the animals tell the stories by by filming them in their their natural environments. Tell, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the Disney nature films and how those came to be? Because it really was something kind of that we haven't seen since you know the True Life Adventures. Yeah, True Life Adventures were stumbled upon by Walt himself, and and uh, he invented. We don't think of it, but we look at Discovery Channel and Nat Geo, and we see all these nature things. We go, oh, that was always been around. It wasn't before Walt Disney. He you know sent this husband and wife couple. Um, up to Alaska to film Eskimos and seals, and three years later, uh, they had a lot of unusable footage. But out of that, he cut together uh, Seal Island uh, and took it to RKO and said, let's distribute this. And RKO said, you're out of your mind. It's all seals. Nobody's going to want to see this. So Walt rented a theater in um, in Glendale in the valley and pulled in an audience and, and tested it, and it tested through the roof. But it, he also very cleverly qualified it by doing that for the Academy Award. And when the Academy Award season came around, Seal Island got nominated for an Academy Award. And RKO said, this is great. Why didn't you say something? <laughs> and uh, from then on, he was making uh, nature films and on TV. A few years back, um, it, we just had this desire again. I think a lot of it comes from Bob Iger. Uh, comes from a sense of Disney's the kind of company that should be doing this. I don't think they're huge money makers. It's not something like an uh, animated film that has a lot of ancillary products. You're not going to see a chimpanzee parade down Main Street probably. Um Although you never know. <laughs> that might be pretty uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speak too soon. But um, it, it's a way to um, give back. On every film, we've had a charity component. On Bears, it was National Parks. On Chimpanzee, it was Jane Goodall Foundation. So uh, on Oceans, it was preserving uh, habitat in coral reefs. So to be able to make movies, tell narrative stories with real animals – and they are real, and we have a really strict ethics code. We don't prod them. We don't put peanut butter in there, you know, do a Mr. Ed thing or anything. Um, they're real animals filmed in the wild in the most impossible circumstances to bring these stories to the audience. So it's a great fun to tell those stories, impossible to make them. Mm-hmm. When you're making the film, it feels like you're trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the box, you know. Um, we shot for three years on Chimpanzee, for example, and had two or three hundred hours of footage to make a 75-minute movie. And every usable frame of that footage is in that movie because mm-hmm. chimpanzees, you know, they, they sleep, they mate, and they throw their poo. <laughs> so you can't put any of those on the screen, and, and uh, you just can't. So you have a very limited amount of content you can put on the screen, and, and uh, that's what the challenge is. And when they turn out like, like chimpanzee, and it's, uh, it's very rewarding. And how do you, you know, I, when you see these films, and what I love too is, um, there is, you know, especially like in, in Epcot Center, you'll see. I still call it Epcot Center. You do see sort of a. It's a not Epcot Center anymore. I know, right? That's, I know. 
I don't know these things. <laughs> I, I, just, I worked on Epcot Center. So. Um, you know, kids love it as much as the adults do, but how do you put something like that together? Because I have to imagine you can't really sort of storyboard out, you know, all right, we're going to go and sort of film the chimps and this is what we need them to do. How do you sort of put that together, or do you just sort of go out and, and take what you can and then and craft a story from what you see? Well, you plan it. The directors write a script, uh, an outline more, you know, maybe a 10-page kind of treatment of what they'd like, knowing that you'll get 60 to 80 percent of it. And on Chimpanzee, it was unusual because, uh, yeah, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Chimpanzee, here it comes. The little star of the show, Oscar, uh, was being taken care of by his mother, who disappeared one night and went off and was probably eaten by a panther. Uh, so here you have this little guy who had been following around for a year, and you go, oh, my movie's done. I just let's go back to the hotel. And uh, But then the most remarkable thing happened because the alpha male in that tribe, that family of chimps, adopted Oscar, which never happens. And if, even Jane Goodall said, I've seen it once, but I've never seen it filmed. So you got this tremendous accidental, never in the script, never imagined, and then the whole movie took a turn, and it was about Oscar and Freddie, his alpha male that adopted him. So you have to plan it as though you're going to shoot it like a script and then uh, be willing to improvise and take it where it wants to take you. It's like whitewater rafting. Mm. You know, you, you prepare, you have the helmet, you have the, but you have to be ready to be thrown out of the boat. You have to be ready to go wherever the river takes you. And that's very much how uh, nature filmmaking is. And, you know, the, the one thing that, um, and spoiler, people probably might not realize is, you know. <laughs> spoiler alert, spoiler. I'm not wearing trousers. <laughs> that's no, why that's... we're only shooting from the top. <laughs> yeah, the top. thank God, no. Um, you know, everything that you do, and I say you individually and then you sort of collectively in terms of animation and the documentary films and all that you do is that you're entertaining but you're educating right you're very much of a, you're very much a teacher so whether you're teaching a life lesson through a movie like frozen mm-hmm. whether you're teaching us about conservation animals through the disney nature films whether you're teaching us about walt and you're you know as if you haven't done enough to you've also written some very very successful books about things like creativity like you want to sort of educate and teach this next generation of creative artists, and I use artists sort of in mm-hmm. air quotes. Tell us about what was the sort of impetus to start writing the books? It was easy for me because the generation before me, people like Willie Reitherman, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, Ward Kimball, shared their knowledge so openly with us. I'm part of a generation that's like, oh, Brad Bird and um, Tim Burton and Ron Clements and John Lasseter. And they were so free with their knowledge and so free with sharing it that it seemed just, again, part of that Disney culture that you don't hide it. You share it openly. And um, it was always shared within the walls of the studio openly. There was never any problem with, with sharing information. It's not, it's not mine. I don't own it. I was given it. So it's, it's my job to kind of pass it back. So these books, uh, you know, mine and many great books that are out there right now from people at Disney are um, – kind of a testament to that same aesthetic and ethic that Walt Disney had, which is uh, let's learn, let's teach. I mean, Walt set up a school at his studio in 1935. He hired instructors to come in and life drawing models and painters and colorists and Frank Lloyd Wright came in and talked about architecture and Charlie Chaplin came in and H.G. Wells came into the studio. He put on a university on at the studio lot on Hyperion just to get ready for Snow White. So here's a man who uh, on paper, had no education, didn't go to college. He was probably the most uh, interested guy in education that you'd ever run across. 
and he practiced it. He didn't, just didn't say, well, you know, you got to educate your kids and that. He practiced it. He opened CalArts. You know, it, he, he really walked the walk. So I think that's what uh, what's inspiring to me is to say, I've worked with some great people, Howard Ashman and, and a million great d- directors. And, and if I have a strength as a producer, it's that I surround myself with really good people and then do exactly what they tell me to do. Um, so, but I want the experiences of all that I want to write down. I want to write down and say, you know, in this situation, this is what happened. And look how many times we failed before we succeeded. And look how many bad drawings I did before I did one good one. And I'm a painter. I do look at all these terrible paintings. And look, look, I got a good one. I don't show you the, the thousand terrible paintings I did. I just show you the good one at the end of it all to give you permission to fail, to give you the permission to know that that's part of the creative process. And I love sharing that. I really do. And is the, is the goal sort of inspire you know, young artists or, or older people who say maybe this I'm too old to start doing this and, and it's okay to fail, it's okay to try it, it's okay to start anytime. It's really about money. I want to make a lot of money. It's a cash uh, it's a cash grab. I, that's what I thought. Um, no, it's just not <laughs> passion. Um it, yeah it is. It, it I, I don't think people when I when I was young walked to school in the snow on my knees. Um no I, I there weren't that many books out there and the, now there's university courses in animation and filmmaking and some great programs out there. But I wanted to give um, easy-to-access paperback information to people who might be interested in a career in the arts but were hesitant. And it always amuses me because everything from the shirts we're wearing to the equipment you're using to this room we're sitting in was designed by an artist. Every color was picked up by an artist. The car you drove here was designed by an artist. So what's the big deal about the arts? We live and eat and work with them every day. And yet sometimes in our culture we go, ooh, oh, like my mom said, you better learn how to type because you have to back <laughs> back up and and have that like in case it doesn't work out. Yes, that's true, but there's no reason to be shy about it and uh, and to know that the arts, they work on a different scale. You know, if you have a uh, – certainly mathematics, reading, and all that stuff is, is crucially important. But if you have a math problem, there's a right and a wrong answer. In the arts, there's not a right and a wrong answer. You know, what color do I paint a parade float going down Main Street at Disneyland? It's got to be blue. No, it's not. There's no right answer. It's aesthetics. It's gut level. It's experience. It's discussion. It's collaboration. And uh, that's why I love it. And I love the people that work in the arts because um, they realize that life itself isn't black and white. There's no right answer and wrong answer. It's about collaboration and arriving at what is the right answer for today Mm -hmm. because that may not be the right answer for tomorrow or for 10 years from now. So uh, that's what I like about it. And the other thing, Don, too, that I sort of get from from everything that you do, you know, as a as a creator, is it's all about um, it's about emotion and it's about story. Right. Mm-hmm. Everything that's that's being designed is about story. And to that point, talk briefly about Maleficent. Mm-hmm. Right. It's telling a story that, again, like Frozen, we were we weren't necessarily expecting. We weren't mm-hmm. expecting Maleficent's Willer to be a, a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the idea for the telling of uh, the the retelling of a new part of that story come to be? Uh, you know, there's no uh, magical ceremony with with God where these ideas are handed down. It's uh, it happened in a small office at the studio with Linda Wolverton, the writer, and some executives from Disney, and after lunch with a big Starbucks coffee, and you're just talking mm-hmm. about what can we do to make this interesting and relevant. So much uh, storytelling need, always needs to be relevant, and um, 
I always smile when people say, well, just you, you really changed the original fairy tale because the truth is there wasn't an original fairy tale. It, it, it's like Cupid and Psyche is the same as Hunchback of Notre Dame is the same as Fan of the Opera is the same as Cyrano is the same as um, uh, Beauty and the Beast. So those are all the same story, mm-hmm. just told in different ways. So to be able to take a story like Sleeping Beauty title the movie Maleficent and do a deep dig into the character of Maleficent uh, was the goal. We were inspired by things like, you know, Dark Knight and some origin stories, uh, Wicked, that kind of thing. And and so it was like, well, what what is it that makes this girl tick? She's beautiful. She, we never know her that much on the screen, though. She's kind of cool. She's got a bird. And you go, Where's, what, what is this? So it was, a, it was a great opportunity to dig deeper into that character and say, what makes her tick? Why is she so angry? Where does this come from? Why does she want to curse this baby? I mean, what's the deal there? So it's basically to us, it was a character with anger issues. And you go, well, that had to come from somewhere. <laughs> and uh, Linda Wolverton's really good at doing her research and digging into the fairy world and the f- and reading all the versions of the fairy tale. And and uh, we watched the Disney movie endlessly and went to the archives and looked at all the artwork, the Ivan Durrell paintings and the Mark Davis drawings. And, and out of that comes, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we tried this? Um, and inevitably, knock on wood, thank God, the audience... Uh, is grateful for it because it gives them a relevant story. Mm-hmm. Had we come out in 2014 with a story about a woman who's asleep who can only wake up when her handsome young man comes along and reawakens her, metaphorically speaking, uh, that sucks. That's not a message I want to give to my daughter. <laughs> that worked really great. Some the, random guy comes to kiss you. That's that's okay. Fine, right? No, it's a kind of creepy thing about it. And it was okay in the 50s because you go, yeah, you know, I, my goal in life as a woman was very different than it is now. So what a great story. Totally irrelevant to today's audience. So how do you take it and be very true to the original story and retell it in a way that's relevant? Because you know what? That's what the Grimms did. That's what Walt Disney did. That's what all these you know, verbal oral tradition storytellers have done for the last two or 3,000 years is retell stories, but retell them in a way that fits their community, fits their culture, fits their town. And it's cool the way you guys crafted it because when I used to see Sleeping Beauty, I was like, if they would have just invited her to the party, none of this would have happened. And uh, yeah, it's that simple. <laughs> that's it. That's what I thought. Um, left was, I yeah. really was just an excuse to work with Angelina Jolie, right? It just Yeah, who is remarkable. You know, I, I, you can say a lot about her, but uh, wow, she's the real deal. You know, she, um, amusingly, at the last day of shooting, we had her for three months, long makeup sessions, horns, the whole nine yards. Uh, and, I, and, sh- and definitely she and Elle Fanning are the ones that make that movie work. There's no question in lesser hands that that plot would have fallen apart because it's a very thin line it walks because you don't want to say well hey everybody Maleficent you know what she's really good inside because that that's like what? but um, she walks that line but anyway we finished wrapping and the next day she, and she had her kids on the set she said mom we've done meetings on the phone where she had like a kid here and the phone here and talking about <laughs> and uh and she left afterwards to survey the uh, Syrian refugee camps in Lebanon uh, for the UN the day after she left like the day after I, I left, I went to like Wimpy Burger. <laughs> and and so she's out there doing her UN Messenger of Peace thing beautifully, um, raising a family, dealing with issues like breast cancer, 
being a spokesperson for that, um, promoting the movie, and she directed a movie when she was done. I mean, she's an amazing human being, a real role model, I think, uh, to, to look at and investigate the kind of life you can have. One of the things I saw consistently as the movie was starting to premiere on social media channels over and over again was only Angelina Jolie could have played this part, mm-hmm. like as if it was written for her. Was she – is when you're crafting the film, do you start with somebody like her in mind saying this is – she would be the perfect Maleficent? It was only about her. It wouldn't have gotten made without her. Only about her. Wow. We st- it started in uh, animation a long time ago and it pretty quickly went to live action as a live action movie. Sean Bailey, the head of the studio, um, called up her representatives and sent a script over, early treatment of it. And she said, I've always loved this character. I grew up with this character. I'm really interested. Tell me more. And she never left. It was only about her. It's not like we said, oh, God, we've got to only get Khloe Kardashian or something. It wasn't, it wasn't that. <laughs> it was always about uh, her. And because of that, we got this tremendous contribution from her in terms of storytelling, character development, costuming, fashion, you know, all the things that she brings to the party with her uh, sensibility. So, without divulging these secrets, what what is next for Don Hahn? What like what are you going to share with us next? Other than other, other than hopefully a Wimpy Burger. I, yes, I have some movie ideas that I'm thinking about, but I, I'm actually deep into a new book uh, called Before Ever After, and it's a book about. Uh, the training university, the program at Disney that Walt Disney set up in the 1930s before Snow White. How do you take a bunch of guys that are drawing Mickey Mouse with a quarter and two dimes as this little character and turn that into a full-length color animation feature? How do you do that in 10 years during the Depression? Hmm. How did that happen? So um, it'll be out in Disney editions next year, and it's fantastic. We found all kinds of amazing student work from Frank Thomas and Ward Kimball that we're going to be showing. We have uh, never-before-seen photographs of uh, you know, the ballerinas that came into the studio and were photographed for Dance of the Hours and all these things that, that I've never seen, and, and hopefully people haven't either, just to talk about the Herculean effort it was to just educate his people to get ready for Snow White. Awesome. Well, we're unfortunately out of time. I could talk to you all day, but I appreciate you... Um you know, as a as a fan and as a parent, you sharing your your time and your talent and your stories oh, and your you. surprises and you know your personal inspiration um, because of of what you do. So it's my pleasure. It, it really is. I feel like uh, I work with great people. I get a chance to work uh, with a company that had a great founder. And um, how can you beat that? Awesome, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you. Go put my pants on now. <laughs> No, leave them on, Don. Better this way. The bay come and takes to the bells of Notre Dame, to the big bells as loud as the thunder, to the little bells soft as a song. And some say the soul of the city is the toll of the bells. The bells of Notre It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see and maybe even what you hear. You then can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize pack. But before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. 
So last week, I was thinking about Adventureland, one of my favorite lands in the Magic Kingdom, and an often overlooked, especially when it's hot, attraction in Adventureland, and that is the Swiss Family Treehouse. And again, part of what I want to do with these trivia questions and my trivia books and the audio tours is make you really take the time to stop and look up and look down and look around and pay attention to the details in what you see, like I said, or even what you hear. So this last week, I asked you a question about one of those details, which was this. What was the name of the ill-fated ship that the Swiss family used the wreckage from in order to create their treehouse? You see as you walk through that when their ship crashed on the shore of the island that they used so many of the pieces of the ship's hull and the interior of the ships and the different rooms to create their home inside the treehouse. But you ever ask yourself, what's the name of the ship? Because back in the original novel, back in 1813, Johann Weiss gave no name to the ship itself, but Disney gave a few names, sometimes contradictory. So in Disneyland, the original sign named the ship as The Recovery, and that later was changed to the Titus. Now, in Walt Disney World, the name of the ship, and you can find this on the sign as you enter the attraction, is known as the Swallow. Now, we had a lot of fun with the question last week because hundreds of you answered and answered correctly that the name was Swallow. Other of you asked questions back saying, I think the name is Falconhurst, isn't it? Or what about Tentholm? Well, those names, Falconhurst was the name of one of the homes that they built in the branches of a tree. Tent home was the first place that they had built on the beach, and actually the rock house was built inside a cavern that they had used uh, in the original novel as well. But what we were looking for was Swallow. Again, pretty much all of you got this one correct. You were playing for all of my audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom, a copy of my new book, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at, for and at Walt Disney World, and I'm getting ahead of myself because you're also playing for a mystery vinylmation. And last week's winner, randomly selected from all the correct entries, is Sam Merritt. So, cr- Sam, congratulations. Get me your address. I'll get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, I appreciate you playing. Loved all the enthusiasm. But don't worry, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, as you know, I am a bit of a nostalgic. I love old Magic Kingdom and classic Epcot Center. And I was actually thinking about the original Journey into Imagination Pavilion and talking with somebody about the original incarnation of that ride and Dreamfinder and Figment. And that got me inspired for this week's question. Because in the original Journey into Imagination, in the post-show area, was the image work, that interactive play area on the second floor that I would love to get back up and see again one day. But that area, when it originally opened, featured something called the Dreamfinders School of Blank. It wasn't sort of your normal traditional school, but he had a school of something. All you need to do is tell me what that school was. The Dreamfinders School of what? You have until Sunday, July 20th, to send your answer to contest at wdwradio.com. And again, you're playing for all six of the audio walking tours, a copy of 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World, and I'm currently putting a lot of my Disney collection up on eBay. I'm going to pull one of those items out and send that to you as well. So you're also playing for a mystery item from my Disney collection. So good luck and have fun.
That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. I want to give a quick thanks again to everybody who's purchased and reviewed my new book, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World. We now have over 100 reviews on Amazon.com. Thanks to people like Sean Craft and Art Mills. Also, don't forget, if you buy the print version from Amazon, you could also get the Kindle edition for just $2.99. Again, you can find out more, get sample pages, and download the book either on Kindle, Nook, Kobo, or PDF. You can also get a link to Amazon.com right by visiting Disney102.com. Please go and subscribe to the show over on iTunes. And don't forget, if you visit www.radio.com, there's lots more there, including our multiple daily blog posts. have some great authors contributing there. New videos, including my new Disney Snack of the Week, which you can get as soon as it's released by subscribing to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Radio. We also have a free email newsletter with exclusive content, contests, offers, and lots more. You can download the free app for your iPhone or Android device. Everything you can find, again, is at www.radio.com. You can connect with me directly on Twitter. I am at Lou Mangiello, or follow me at facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello. We also have the WW Radio page at facebook.com slash WW Radio. If you have a question you want to have answered on the show, you can email me at Lou at WDWRadio.com. Or if you want to be heard on the air, call the voicemail at 407-900-9391 or use the big orange button on the right-hand side of the WDW Radio website, And you know, as much as I love connecting with you guys online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. That's why I have a meet of the month every month in Walt Disney World. It's free. It's open to everyone. Our next meet is going to be Saturday, July 26th at 2 p.m. in downtown Disney at the brand new Starbucks in downtown Disney Westside. We'll go from about 2 to 4 p.m. Anyone and everyone is welcome. It's perfectly family-friendly, so bring the kids as well. You can visit the events page over at www.radio.com to find out more and RSVP, if you could, over on our Facebook events page. There you'll also find out about other events. Just a couple of days left to get some tickets to our WDW Radio Neverland and Sea Land event at the Atlantic Dance Hall and Nighttime Illumination Dessert Party coming up next month. I'll also be doing other events while I'm out speaking and doing other conferences on the road. So I'll be in Dallas August 16th and 17th. I'll be doing a meetup probably Sunday the 17th in the evening sometime. If you visit lumangelo.com, go to the speaking page or the events page. You can find out more there as well. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider because it's who I use. So when you're coming down to World or Land or coming out with us to one of our events, like on the Disney Cruise Line, visit mousefantravel.com. Best possible prices, all available discounts. Most importantly, and it's why I love and recommend them, it's because their agents give you such incredible personal attention that costs absolutely nothing for you. Again, visit them over at mousefantravel.com. And if you want some Disney magic delivered in print right to your door, visit celebrationspress.com. You can subscribe and order back issues to Celebrations Magazine. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Tell your friends about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links or come by and comment over on Facebook or YouTube. And please rate and review the show over at iTunes. I want to thank people like Haas Redborn, King BDS, CMAT22, Doug Diamond, and Susie Nicole. Really appreciate appreciate your latest ratings and review. Again, if you visit iTunes, just search for WW Radio. You can find it and rate and review and subscribe to the show there. And most importantly, 
I want to say my sincerest thanks to each and every one of you who listens and emails and takes the time out of your busy day and week to let me share my passion for Disney with you in so many different ways. I appreciate it so much, and I wake up every day so excited and so looking forward to what I do. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to feel the same way that I do and do what you love every day. So what I ask you to do is this. I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself six months from now and what you want to be doing and where you want to be. And don't stop, right? And always keep moving forward because I promise you it will be worth it. And always have faith, whether it's in yourself or your dreams or a higher power or whatever it may be, because it is the most important thing. If you don't use it, you will lose it. So I hope you guys have a great week. Thank you again so very much. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou, Gary from Columbus calling. It's been a long time since I talked to you, but uh, I am still a loyal listener. Haven't missed a show in over six years now. Loving it. Uh, your latest episode about ways to stay cool in the world, we found a way several trips ago that has really worked out well, and this is for when people are staying on property and have access to a freezer, they have a kitchen and a freezer, and hopefully you're doing your uh, doing some food shopping in a grocery store and saving some money that way, get a case of bottled water. When you get back, put all the bottled water in the freezer. Let the bottles freeze solid. The next day when you head out to the parks, write your name on the cap for each member of your party, throw the frozen bottles into a grocery bag and take the parks with you. And the nice thing about that is not only are you drinking that cold water from the bottles and it quicker than you think, but as you go throughout the day, you'll end up with this tube of ice in the middle of there, and you can uh, stop at drinking fountains and keep drinking ice-cold water. Gosh, we've had, we've gone, you know, first thing in the morning and had those bottles last well into the afternoon, so especially if you've got them in the bag together somewhere where maybe they're not in the direct sunlight, it helps keep them cold longer, so that's one true way we've... Uh, found to stay cool and hydrated, and it's worked out for us. So keep on rocking, though. Enjoying the show. Take care. Good morning this sunny morning on a July, which is 56 degrees in Buffalo, New York, but I am looking forward to a WDW Radio Alaska Disney Wonder Cruise next June. In 2015, this is Darlene Nagy, and it is a gorgeous day. Even if it is a little on the chilly side, I'm sure it will warm up, but this is probably the weather we will be looking forward to in Alaska from what I've been studying. Have a great day. Have a magical weekend, and I can't wait to cruise with all of my friends from the WDW Radio Fox people and just friends that I've met through the group. Have a great weekend. See you real soon. You've got